Our scripture for this morning will be in the Gospel of Matthew in the 16th chapter, verse 20, beginning in verse 21. But as you're turning there, I, I want to ask you a question to think about. Who is the hardest person for you to say no to? Who? I heard somebody say my wife. I don't know where it came from, but I heard it. Who is the hardest person for you to say no to? It may be a spouse. It may be a child, a grandchild, a, a great-grandchild. For some of you, it may be a pet. I don't know who it is, but we all have that person that probably came to mind the moment that question was asked. Who's the hardest person for you to say no to? And I want to follow it up with a statement that I've come to realize, which is I firmly believe the hardest person for us to say no to is ourselves. That we so often can say, oh, well, this person's difficult to say no to, but when push comes to shove, if it just came to where it was their way or our way, the person that we're going to agree with is us. And I ask that question because as we continue on this journey, last week we kind of started looking at what it means to be a disciple and what it means to choose to follow the leader, the leader being Christ, not our own wants and desires. Today we hear in our text where Jesus says, sometimes you just have to say no even to yourself. And as I've said many a times before, we're, as we're going to start in verse 21, it will say, from that time on, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, if a text starts with, from that time on, or therefore, or something along those lines, it's a good practice to go back and look at what was going on before the text. And so before this text, what we see is Jesus coming to the disciples, and there's this debate going on about who Jesus is. And Jesus says, well, who do they say I am? And some said John the Baptist and others Elijah. And then Jesus stops them right there and says, okay, I know what the world says. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes on and blesses Peter and says, this was not given to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And he says these words that we've heard before, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so this is kind of what has happened leading up to our text. And in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21, it says this, that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
And I just want to pause right there because I can imagine that as Peter is proclaiming, Jesus, you are the Messiah, he, he has kind of an assumption, if you will, as to what the Messiah means. He, I can imagine as the disciples hear Jesus say, hey, this is what's about to happen. I'm going to go and I'm going to be persecuted and murdered by those very people that are teaching the law that they are shocked because they have grown up believing that the Messiah was the one that would come and set the people of Israel free. They have been taught and believed that he would do so by force. And now they're hearing that he must come and die. Not only die, but be crucified. And, and I came across this fact this week, and I'd never heard this before, but the idea of crucifixion, while it was the most barbaric way to put someone to death, which I'm sure many of you have heard before, that I did not know this. It was against the law to put a Roman citizen to death via crucifixion because they deemed it too barbaric, and so they would not do this to their own people. And so this proclamation of Christ saying, I'm going to come and be put to death by crucifixion is a, is a nod to, that, to remind them of what Peter had just said, that, that you're not of this world, that this is not your kingdom, but your kingdom is something greater. But as they're, they're shocked, we hear in verse 22, where Peter pulls Jesus aside, I can, I can just almost see this unfolding, where he's confused and he's scared and he's frustrated. And so he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And so just like that, we see Peter go from, this is the cornerstone, this is the rock on which I will build my church, to a stumbling block. And what we see kind of laid out in the buildup and in this text is this. Peter has all the right words. He, he, he understands on a grand scale. But what he starts to look at is his own wants and desires. He doesn't understand the specifics of how God works. He gets big picture and says, all right, that's all I need to know, and kind of stops there. And so in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 16, we, we see Jesus rebuking the wind and the sea and exercising his own authority over the crowds. But now T Peter turns to him, looks him in the eyes, and says, wait a minute, Jesus, it's not going to be that way. And decides that he's going to rebuke Jesus. Just a side note, that's probably never a good idea to rebuke Jesus. But how frequently do we rebuke Jesus? 
all right now, that's not how I drew it up. All right now, that's not how I would have done it. That's not what I want. And I, and I kind of wrestled with this idea that, you know, even as I said, rebuking Christ is not a good idea. How frequently do we do so whenever our own safety or survival is threatened? We, we lose trust in the ways of Christ and start to rely on our own understanding and our own pathway. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're following your way again. You need to follow the way again. And in order to do so, you need to say no to some stuff. Now, I do want to address this troublesome line that we often look at that says, get behind me, Satan. Because I've even heard some folks, and this is just how you can manipulate Scripture sometimes. I don't know if y'all are aware of that. But I've heard some folks manipulate the Scriptures in this very area and go, okay, so if Peter is the rock on which the church is built, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, therefore, the rock on which the church is built is Satan. And I'm like, no, that's, that's a stretch. But that's how people's minds work sometimes when we want to manipulate Scriptures. To, ca to cater to our own wants and desires, but what he's ultimately saying to Peter is this, hey, fall in line. Follow the leader. You're not in charge. I am. You know, I can imagine that, that Peter kind of had a big head after his interaction with Jesus. He had just given the right answer, and Jesus said, good job, buddy. And all of a sudden he's like, yeah. Yeah, and so he gets his big head, and he's like, no, Jesus, we're not going to do that. And Jesus is like, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. You're still not in charge. Jesus is not being harsh by calling Peter Satan, because what Jesus is ultimately pointing to is this. The path that he must go on is so central to God's plan for redemption of the world that if he was to sidestep it, or if he was to break from it, avoid it, that it would be the work of Satan. That, that he's saying, you're tempting me to try to, to deviate from God's will. And this idea of get behind me, we kind of look at it as a, as a shrug off and say, Peter is no longer a part of the 12 almost when he says, get behind me, I'm done with you type mentality. And I've always told y'all to bear with me when it comes to the root language because I'm not a logistics scholar or a linguistic. See, I'm not that either. I'm not a linguistics scholar either, but the term is opiso moi, or if you are into linguistics, it's O-P-I-S-O -S space M-O-U. And it's the exact same phrase that we hear in chapter 4, verse 19. You remember what happens in 419? That's where Jesus calls the disciples and says, follow me. 
And so the good news that he's casting to Peter is this. You may have gotten it wrong. You may have gotten a big head. You may have sought your own will and your own way. But guess what? There's still time for you to follow me. You may have gone from being the rock to the stumbling block. But there's still time for you to follow me. And so the call is not a call that says, I'm done with you because you gave the wrong answer, but it is indeed a call to deeper discipleship as Jesus is casting the vision of what it means. And he's saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, I'm not going to leave you in the dark. I'm going to let you know where we're heading. And it's going to take us all the way to the cross. As we hear Jesus say in verse 24, If anyone come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, Jesus corrects Peter and says, I know that you know all the words and know all the answers, or think you do, but trust me, there's still some work to be done. And as we call, answer the call to discipleship, we must be honest that there is a cost of discipleship as well when we are called to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow the way of Christ. Or to put it more bluntly, as my Christian ethics professor would always say in seminary, the call to follow Jesus is a call that says you better look good on wood. It's, it's a call to the narrow way of self-denial. And this idea of self-denial is not a place of, of self-loathing and self-hatred, but is actually a way that says, you know what, I'm not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around me. Which is kind of counterintuitive to how we've grown up. Because if you don't believe me that we think the world revolves around us, there's no better place to look than a toddler. The world revolves around a toddler. When they want what they want, they want it right then. If they don't get what they want, they're going to make sure that they get what they want. The world revolves around a toddler. Now, some could argue that's because we allow the world to revolve around them. But I would dare say it's because it's to some extent, innate within us. That, that we find ourselves looking at ourselves and saying, I'm the center of the universe. My wants and my desires supersede that of anyone or anything else. It's because when we hear the call to just say no, we say, I'll say no to everyone and everything except for me. And so we have to take a step back and look at the idea of what are we called to say no to. Because I think so often we, we hear this text and we say, oh yeah, self-denial, I got it. I need to say no to those bad things that the world is calling me to. But I also think that we need to, to look at it in the bigger picture. And the reality is, is we need to say no to our own wants, desires, hopes, and dreams so that we can say yes to God's wants, desires, hopes, and dreams for us. 
Because so often we have created our own dream world, and then we go, God, don't you want to bless that for me? Don't you want to make that happen? Instead of first going, all right, God, what is your pathway for me? I've shared it before that there, it, if I, when I was growing up, the last thing I wanted to be, the last thing I thought I would be was a preacher. I was like, I'm going to be a veterinarian. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. And God kept going, okay, you keep thinking that. And so this idea of self-denial is to cast off our own wants and desires, our own hopes, our own dreams, and say, God, fill me with your hopes and dreams for me. And this is a whole new way of teaching because no other rabbi in Jesus' day is teaching this way. No other rabbi is saying, take up your cross and follow me. And the reason is, is because no other rabbi is going to take up their cross for the salvation of humankind. And so this idea of taking up your cross is one that says, are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to surrender your pride and your ego, your status, your comfort, your very life? That thing that you've held on to and said, this is my way and this is what makes me comfortable. And I think so often... The idols that we build in our lives that keep us from following the way of Christ rest in our own comfort. Preacher, this is just where I'm happy. This is what I know. And I don't want to go somewhere that I don't know. Which is a question of are we living lives of faith or comfort? Uh, have, we, have we kind of become Peter in our lives where we say, I already know, and when Jesus says, hey, I'm calling you this way, we pull Jesus aside and go, ah, Jesus, I don't think so. And I think Jesus would respond the same way. Get behind me, Satan. Fall in line. Follow the leader. Don't seek your own kingdom, but seek mine first. Sacrifice for the betterment of my will. And I think so often this phrase of taking up my cross or, or that's my cross to bear, it, I haven't heard it a lot as frequent, but has become kind of a phrase where we've used it just for daily annoyances. Oh, the coffee pot broke. Well, I guess that's my cross to bear. Oh, my... my my husband didn't listen to me when I told him to take out the trash. Now I have to do it. I guess that's my cross to bear. But this idea of taking up your cross is not about daily annoyances. It's not to be used flippantly or even to keep those in oppression. Because I think so often, sadly, in our world, this has been a term where we keep people in places that they should never be of abuse, where we say, oh, well, just that's your cross to bear. Stay in that relationship. Stay at that job. Stay down that pathway of oppression and addiction and hurt. But to take up one's cross means so much more and it's such a deeper meaning as it is a call to accept the ridicule and the hostility from those who thinking, whose thinking reflects the ways of this world and not the ways of 
Christ. And so we find ourselves, many of us, saying, oh, well, you know, following Jesus, there's not a lot of uh, opposition this, in our world today. We don't have to, to worry about judgment and pushback in our world today. It's kind of commonplace. I've shared this before, and it always makes me giggle, and this past week was homecoming at Forest, and so it just kind of brought it to my mind again. How every time you go to a homecoming, and they announce the maids and whoever else, every one of them has a church that they're a member of. And if you're a youth pastor, it, it'll amaze you. Just go sit in the stands. How many youth you have? You may have never met them before, but they're members. Because it's the commonplace. It's become culturally acceptable, especially in the South. And, and so we start going, oh, there's no pushback. There's no hostility towards being a Christian in the South. And I would dare say it may be because we're not, we've, fallen short of following the way of Christ, and we have shifted God's will and said it is the world's will. We say, oh, I'm following God's will, but we're really following the ways of this world, and that's why there is no opposition or pushback. And this idea of taking up our cross is a straight reflection to the crucifixion of Christ, which many of us go, wait a minute, preacher. Death, that sounds pretty rough, to which I would remind you of this. If we want to be revived and resurrected with Christ, you know what the first step is? Death. You must die to self to be resurrected with Christ. So if you have never died to self, the question would be, have you truly been revived in Christ Jesus? Because there is a cost of discipleship, a cost of self-denial, a cost of taking up our cross, a cost of daily surrender and sacrifice. Where we daily rise. Because I want to remind you, when he calls us to follow, it's not a one-time thing, but it is a present tense verb. Which, like I said, I'm not the smartest when it comes to the English language, but I do understand this. That means that it is something that is occurring currently. Day after day, moment after moment, we arise and say, God, I surrender to you. God, not my will, but yours be done. God, I, I've sought my way, but now I seek to follow the narrow way. Because many of us have found ourselves on a journey of our own way, of our own creation. And we find ourselves, and I've been guilty of this myself, where we find ourselves in a place that says, God, my life seems so hollow and empty of purpose. I just feel like we're going through the motions, just doing what we've always done. God, I need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my life is sometimes the language that we use. And I would dare say that we need to take a step back and analyze, is it because we are following our own way instead of following God's way? Because when we follow our own way, it will absolutely lead to a hollow life, an empty life. But we're not called to that life. Jesus proclaims over and over, follow me and you will experience life to the fullest. 
I came across a quote from a missionary named Jim Elliott. You may have heard this quote before, but, but Jim Elliott went to spread the good news, and he wrote this in his journal just before he went out to the tribes, and one of the tribes actually ended up killing him as he proclaimed the good news of Christ. But the quote is this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So many of us have held on to our own wants, our own desires, our own understandings, the ways of this world, which as we hear in the scriptures are things that we cannot keep. And so the call today is to let go of those things that we cannot keep and cling to the ways of Christ Jesus, which is the very thing that we cannot lose. As we follow the way of our Father, as we follow the way to eternal life, not just on that side of death, but living into the fullness of life in the here and now. And for some of us, the step that we need to take today is to just say no. No to our own wants and our own desires. No to the callings of this world so that we can say yes to Christ. Amen.